You are listening to All Things Cosmic Philosophy, Science, Art An extension of the Center for Process Studies The podcast for the people Pursuing the common good I'm your host, John Ivan Gill Along with Andrew Davis Open the door, come on in Good day, all things cosmic people. How are you doing? You can't answer back, but you can. I just can't hear you. Hope you're well. Great 2023 to you all. This is John Ivan Gill. I am the Cross Community Coordinator with the Center for Process Studies. Excited to be with you on a new episode of All Things Cosmic. We've been away for a long time. Um, You haven't heard from us since August, I think. Yeah, since August, since we had the great Jose Pimienta Bay, who discussed his work on the history of the, of the Moors and his text, Othello's Children in the New World. Um, it's a good conversation. And season two has been really dope so far. So thank you for tuning in. And we have look forward to a good 2023 of great episodes and fantastic food for thought and fuel for transformation. So, yeah. It's a lot of exciting things happening right now with the Center for Process Studies. Um, Whitehead Film Festival's coming up in February, as well as the 50th anniversary of the Center for Process Studies. We're excited about that. Um, a lot of us will be in Claremont for that celebration um, in mid-February. Um, so yeah, make sure you check out the website and get in tune. Yeah, we are, are of course, at CTR, the number four, process.org. Make sure you check us out. And just to say a few more things about the 50th anniversary of CPS, it's going to be happening from February 15th through 17th, and it's sponsored by the Cobb Institute, the Institute for Ecological Civilization, the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China. So we're looking forward to a great time. We're going to have three days of sessions. The first day, day one, we're going to deal with re-enchanting religion, process theologies in the 21st century. Second day, we'll be dealing with science and philosophy, nature and the nature of reality. And day three, process and practice, society, sustainability, and ecological civilization. So make sure you visit us during those days. And this is happening at Claremont United Church of Christ. Um, and also, right after that, because it's going to be a, just a smorgasbord of relational, we're going to be relational worldviewed out from, from the, the conference, the 15th anniversary is from the 15th to the 17th, and the Common Good Film Festival kicks off on the... I believe it kicks off on February 17th. That actually it overlaps with the the 50th anniversary. So that's going on from February 17th to 20th and we're going to have uh, several films that point us toward how we can understand and relate to a, a relational worldview in the common toward the common good. Um and this is going to be at Claremont Limley. Um Claremont Limley 5 downtown Claremont um so yeah this is the first time we've had 
uh, Common Good Film Festival, formerly known as the Whitehead Film Festival, where you can actually bring popcorn. Um, this is in an actual theater, and we will get the full experience of the film. So make sure you check that out. Once again, more information for that can be attained at commongoodfilms.org. And if you want to have more information on the 50th anniversary and other CPS-related things, make sure you check out Center CTR, not spelled out, Center CTR for number four process.org. So that was a mouthful. Um, so we are excited to bring our guest today. Our guest today is Christopher M. Driscoll. Christopher M. Driscoll is an associate professor of religion studies at Lehigh University in the U.S. He is the author of White Lies, Race and Uncertainty in the Twilight of American Religion, co-author of Method as Identity, Manufacturing Distance in the Academic Study of Religion with Monica Miller, co-editor of Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning, and co-editor of Breaking Bread, Breaking Beats, Churches, and Hip Hop, a guide to key issues. And we're really excited to have Dr. Driscoll on the broadcast. Um, he just released a new book with Bloomsbury. It's called White Devils, Black Gods, Race, Masculinity, and Religious Codependency. And Dr. Driscoll has continued in the tradition of impeccable scholarship to bring us this text where he investigates the concept of the white devil as it has been utilized not only in the esoteric traditions of Islam, such as Nation of Islam, um, Hebrew Israelite religious traditions, Moorish Science Temple of America um, religious traditions, and others, he actually looks toward and he looks to the past and finds evidence of this concept in other periods. And he looks at this in terms of a reckoning of Euro-American and European identities in light of this concept and what European identities and people who identify as such can learn from this concept. Um, so he's done a really, really great text and I look forward to getting into it with him and you just hearing him talk about it. So with no further ado, actually with a little bit of further with a little bit of um, further ado, <laughs> we're going to, before we get into Dr. Driscoll and my discussion, we're going to listen to a song by the Chicago Collective Tomorrow Kings, which I am a part, um, a six-individual hip-hop collective consisting of members from Chicago, Illinois, who have found ourselves at the edge of rap music. Um, we have a song on our first record, NRTM. I'm not going to say what the N means. We have a song on that record called Black Power in Hell. So we're going to start off with Black Power in Hell, then we'll get into Dr. Driscoll. Peace. Yeah, 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 yeah. was the sound that knocked them down. The witnesses around as an unlived life lay dead on the ground. Then they came to blue and white lights, caught up in local heights, landed on the local gang. It seems the more things change, the more they stay the same. So why should I even fight when this pain got a hold of my brain in the form of fear, hate, and shame? I gotta maintain my thoughts before I lose my cross, cause everybody's got one to carry. And 
wanna know what you gotta make it through before I'm dead and buried. We yeah, all yeah, take yeah, a yeah, loss yeah, in exchange yeah. for the gain. Don't worry, cause we pistol, all the pistol. same. Blood on the thug, drug his body down his mag at lunch. Walk past his husk on the way to the barber's chair. Baby mama shriek me to hot kids calling this song does what for the loss. Tattoo my face with pet traps to master dirty pastor. Niche market artist, rapture harvest. A fundraiser performance check to set this murder suicide wheelchair backdrop. Hit it with faces fading faster than my thoughts on next week's beer tasting. I can illustrate this nigga tragedy for outside of amusement. Start little brothers confused and colluded with my art school muses. What's introspection to my aunt's junkie brain? Mom's 89. If it reads more like a comic. Strip at a distance. Should you make the corpse dance for attention? In a thick of a group think view, you was the artsy exception. To a well photographed, get a loop box, got ball with a rose button, Chuck D. Lit the human bohemian, bloody your hands. Go right up to father in public, private moments when there's enough black mother's crown on film to hold us for a while. Give them nigga tenant esoteric storm rap to match the patchwork flag waving. Pin in the race, amazing grace, the storm converted Christian. Kick Walker shame cage with the world's fair argument, the monument to balcony. Swan to the alchemy, feed the dream until it leaks out of speech. Reaching a lesser man is years missing. One man's amen is another man's half finished senses. Prison, prison, baggage, manager, kind of classic devotion. Froze the youth in Sisyphus walk. Chalk it out. Serious thoughts of converting the dim to the decided. Black power in hell. Fuck boy. They say you can be whatever like you want Don't let them tell you that you're just a nigga Fuck what they say You can be whatever you want Don't let them tell you that you're just like power Off in the cut with a record than a scissors Shitting on a red, black, and green Greed run a revolution Bloody with a dagger Dragging through the dragon Spanish cobra sagging Jumping out my pocket Tacking Jesse Jackson Hanging from a noose And pulling by the bandwagon Stabbing Klansman Singing with Neil Young Crazy horse Raise the force Like slum village Raise it up I'm not gonna punk a hunky Nothing angel By the angle Devil's halo Bang from Satan From a racist nation Burn the Dante In the frontals Bro, I carved a state line Change cone is a state sign If God is a white racist Better kill him But this children From the children But revenge from a man That you actually go to the back of the store Kind of picking pussy fucking demons Stab you in a solar plexus with pitchfork Their reviewers don't review me I'm you a niche in the cavern with level fours And a stare Caucasian to the walls I'm hellish with this sentence Wrist guard and fist charge Sex with succubus eating hits at her Swiss charge I get hard and boner with a boner To the seismic waves quick Burger story, Lori dance a black panther The killer for the Lamex the end of your vanilla existence She was forming vices back when, when the backs was broken for private islands. You can read the story and plummet, we numb it to the skies. Uh, violence employed, we rose from the ashes of a broke crack slave with his vision record shattered. A little too dope, the only thing is filling his shoes. Riddle me this, what you envision is your. What's up, nigga? Uh, what's up, black? Uh, I guess we good enough, we hood enough for that all. Until they tell your ass we good enough for half. In order for reparations, need a nation and a flag. 
But who cares? We steal money hungry. I license the killer for another brother takes it from me. Internal revenue service is still lurking. And baby girl around the block is outside still twerking. Crippled by the pillars, we kill us to advertise. I'm a Moorish American Muslim, descended from Iraq and sit on the northwest of Mexico. Pissing out toxins, cause being free never was an option. Uh, so many bodies underneath nobody's conscience. Down in the bottle, we follow, we hobble for ignorance. Uh, the pot is sizzling, we living in spells. Before a slave, it's the reason we fail. Black power in hell. It's good to see you. You too. You too. Really, really good to see you. Yeah, like I, like I was saying, sorry I missed you at AAR. You know? I know, I know. I, uh, I, I, you were, so you were there, right? Yeah. I was there, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I was doing this on-site teaching experience, this uh, special program for Lehigh freshmen that had me in Wyoming and New Mexico for like the, the whole semester. And it mm -hmm. ended on the Saturday of AAR. So I could have mm. technically like come through Denver, but it was just, it was, it was a lot to ask. So I just went home, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, after all, that is like you probably, you probably, you probably just want to just you know zone out and you know it's better to just you know do do what you did and just present the way you did. So no, I was yeah, good. yeah, was good. well, good, good. I did, I did miss being there though for sure. I, I look yeah. forward to to AAR. Yeah, how, how was it? It was actually good, man. I mean, to me, that's the best AAR I've been to for a while. You know, I mean, it was I mean, you're just just seeing different people, the panels I went to, just the conversations I was having with people. It was pretty enriching. So, yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. So it was cool. And I, and I mean, maybe that's because I haven't been on AAR since COVID hit. I don't know. Maybe mm. maybe it was just the fact I missed it so much. But I mean, you know, yeah, but that, I, mean, I mean, I felt like it was it was it was it was a really good time. I mean, just looking at the new texts that are out, like I said, um, the the panels I went to, I didn't go to many, but I mean, the ones that I did go to were pretty, pretty, um, were pretty intense. I had some good conversations with everybody from Dan to Catherine Keller. And it was oh, just, nice. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was good. It was, it was, it was, it was definitely good times. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I look forward to being there next year. I'm doing the same program next year mm -hmm. but I also but i think i'm i'm just gonna prepare myself and and i'll make it to aar so like yeah. i said i like it it's one of the, my favorite things to do but um i just couldn't swing yeah. it yeah 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 i mean you can't always do it you know and, and what you were doing it sounds like you're super intense so yeah <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was real gratifying like i'm super interested in innovation in teaching and and finding ways to really i guess in a way have the students really get their money's worth and so this is one way that i can bring together the different pieces of of who i am and offer all of it kind of in one experience that is pretty unique i feel i feel really excited about it and grateful for mm -hmm. the opportunity but Mm -hmm. It's also it's just weird. It's got my whole kind of workflow, my schedule all out of sorts, but whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. I mean it works. It works, I'm sure, cuz you got to be on got to be away from home, stuff like that and making those adjustments and things yeah. like that, but but yeah, I mean. But no, I think what you're saying is important though cuz 
I asked myself that too, like, can you know? Because I, I, I had this new position at Gustavus Adolphus, you know, and I'm loving it, you know, and it's been really cool. Thanks, man. Thanks, you know, and just you know, just looking at questions around because you know, being since I'll potentially be involved in enrollment, especially you know, recruit um for philosophy in particular but for the college in general I, i'm asking myself the questions well can i really tell somebody to come here you know and mm -hmm. and i mean i believe that i can but you know but what am i gonna but can i give them the best as you're saying can i give them there can i say that you're, you're gonna get what you're paying for to come here especially in an age where college enrollment is decreasing for good reason because it's like well what have we been teaching them you know mm -hmm. that's you know, exactly like, it yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what what is the value proposition, you know? And that I, I don't know anymore, you know. It I I'm not cynical on learning or, or right. higher ed or anything. I just think the industry is at this point where it's it's not sustainable in the long run. And so how we right. navigate that, I think, is is going to be important. Um, so, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Because right, it's not it's not it's not intrinsically bad. It's not that this is this is not a, this is not a campaign against higher ed. It's just Correct. saying, well, well, what are we doing in here? And we could be mm -hmm. doing a lot of shit differently. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think why are students forking over so much money? You know, is and and what what kind of systems are we involved with and and how can we i don't know um make sure that they are equitable and here i don't mean that only to speak to like dei type equity <laughs> issues but also right. although I, i'm including that of course but also you know like what uh, like i said a minute ago what is the value proposition how many experiences are we offering that are both open in the sense that there's a lot of access from anyone who might be interested in our universities or are in uh, the, the stuff that we're interested in, but also can, are we offering something that is different than what could be available, say on YouTube at this point, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think right. we have a lot of degree programs where people are paying a lot of money where they could get the exact same information across uh, YouTube, you know, they could get it for free. They'd have to do a lot of work to curate yeah. th that experience and all, but so that that's all kind of stuff that's on my mind. So that's why I was doing this program. No, that's amazing. That's really, that's really amazing that you were able to approach and, it, and that this is something that you guys are going to keep doing. You know, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. just just kind of, you know, experiment with how we do this and how we can revamp it, you know, yeah. because, yeah, like and, and I think that this even points to that this even points to white devils, black gods, especially when we're dealing with information that is accessible via YouTube, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like, well, well, you know, I literally can learn about several strands of Islam by watching videos, by, you know, by doing this and that. So if I'm asking you to come to a religion class on, on Islam, what can I offer you differently? You know, mm -hmm. and so this is kind of why I've been trying to play with different things like role playing games, you know, um, ways of approaching the information in the classroom that just 
goes way past this okay i'm gonna tell you some shit. you know mm -hmm. just you know you know this is something about this embodied experience which i think you've really done well with this book so oh, um, thank you because know, yeah i think you're embodying a lot of it so yeah, yeah you know, but, i said there's i mean the blueprint for me for pedagogy are the gods on the corner they they really are and in a lot of ways you know that you're talking about a, an entire culture of uh organic intellectuals you know autodidact uh, as a matter of like systemic issues you know but also as a matter of choice in a lot of ways too these are active lifelong learners who also know that part of learning involves teaching becoming teachers and teaching the stuff that that really matters and i think in that regard that they have a lot to to offer uh they they offer a blueprint you know and, and in addition to the content but the, the the blueprint that they offer on how to be a learner how to be a, an instructor right. um, is really important it resonates with me that's for sure yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah i mean this is th this is super important um so before we really go further with you know the pedagogy of the gods on the corner piece of the gods um and the earths um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what brings you to this work i mean maybe even for people who aren't familiar with what you've done um previously give us a little bit of background and from from where you've where you've been to as as process thinkers will say well what you're becoming or who you're becoming sure thanks uh for the question and especially thanks for the opportunity to join you john in conversation um yeah so i come at the study of religion from the angle of race and culture and uh part of that also has always involved a uh an interrogation of the impact of subjective experiences on knowledge knowledge production uh the fancy way we say that in the field is hermeneutics and so I, I've been trained in hermeneutics and I've used those tools of hermeneutics, hermeneutics being the study of how our points of views and our experiences impact um, our understanding of one another and the world and, and those subsequent experiences. Well, I've applied a race lens to, or I've applied hermeneutics to um, a race lens, I guess. I've brought those two things together in, in my work. In, in most cases, most of the things I've written have um, tried to bring together those two different elements. So race is experiential. It is, uh, in some minds, biological. In other, and there's complicated ways we can, we can trouble, but also think about like what are the stakes involved in someone mm -hmm. saying that race is is biological and that there are different periods you know where people have where that's kind of been the, the normative position now that's not the normative position but it um is still a still a position out there but then there are other folks who want to say that race is is a social construction and it doesn't exist and here's where my work has really sought to I guess enter into the conversation because th that's kind of my area. That's where I uh, would 
that's where I grew up thinking, you know, like race is not really real. We just, we just give it too much credit. And so we're always fighting over it and things like that. Some people have been, mm-hmm. uh, have had to suffer, not had to, but some people have suffered because of that concept more than other groups. But in my head, it was never really real. And then I started studying black religion. You know, really, the answer to your question begins with my exposure to the thinking of James Cone. And Cone's book, uh, Black Theology of Liberation, really blew my white mind. It cracked it in half. And I mean white here, yes, to telegraph Mm -hmm. my racial coding, but also to think of it in the Mm -hmm. way that I package the idea of whiteness in my work, which is a kind of, um, the positive way to spin it would be a kind of innocence that hasn't been earned. You know, it's not, it's not an innocence uh, in actuality. It's not an actual childlike innocence. It's more like a, an adult naivete that plays off as innocent. Uh, so, that, so I mean white in both of those senses. It, it, it cracked open my, my mind. And from that, I just started um, exploring what it would mean to think about religion as race. So here's where talk of my talk about race starts to matter more concretely for my work is that I came to a kind of growing awareness that race and religion were never that different from one another. There were different ways of framing the world or, or our experiences. And they, they, they expand from that in different, in different ways. But that's, for me, it was kind of the, the foundation. How could someone like James Cone, trained theologian, you know, went to all the, the right schools, so to speak, and um, came to, he came to this conclusion that um, we couldn't really adequately talk about God without giving more or less equal billing to race. And so he, w- he was coming at the white God in a really powerful way. And... Um, you know, I guess in part, and this is the irony that one of the tensions of race and religion studies, in part because of my white naivete, that, you know, that colorblindness is how we might think of it these days. I, I didn't think that he was pulling a race card. I, I read him as a mm-hmm. purely a theologian. He wasn't an angry black man, although he was both black and angry at times. But, <laughs> but that, that wasn't. I wasn't being dismissive of him in terms of race in a way that I and scores and scores of my white counterparts can easily fall into that kind of dynamic. Um, And so I gave him the benefit of the doubt and said, there must be something to what he's arguing here. And that really inspired me to explore what, what the white God might be all about, what, is the white guy that he's talking about? How can he arrive to that set of conclusions that he does? Where essentially, uh, I want, I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the um, famous quotes from that book is um, a, In a world where black folks suffer precisely because of their blackness, there's no room for uh, a white God. And so, um, black theology seeks to. to I don't know if he uses the word exterminate, but he seeks to um, do away with uh, that God. That God is uh, bereft of any kind of useful 
meaning. And then here, here's where uh, mm-hmm. another powerful, I guess, for me, angle that my research kind of explored is his argument was resonating with me, but I didn't share the same experiences of him. And so mm-hmm. I started to explore like what the stakes were for me in buying into that kind of a concept of um, a raced God or a black God or um, coming to think of a white God as a problem or uh, coming to think of God as raced rather than raceless or colorless, you know, that, which is a, a um, which is in a way uh, an effort to see the history of God. And that's really, I guess, this is all a convoluted kind of answer to your question, but my, my work across the different books, whether it's White Lies or Method as Identity or now um, White Devils, Black Gods, has really been an effort to chart the history of race and religion vis-a-vis gods and theology and the impact of, of those things on how we, how we study religion, but more and more, especially with this book, how we understand who it is that we are. You know, I, I get more general in my prescriptive and proscriptive statements here in this book because I, I wanted to reach a broader audience. I'm not so concerned in this book with speaking to my colleagues as I am speaking to um, my counterparts, my racial counterparts, but also like uh, in, inter and intra-racial counterparts. Just anyone who's thinking and interested in these issues I wanted to uh, write this book in a way that was accessible and um, started conversations rather than sought to to end those conversations. Um, I guess I'll I'll throw it back to you now. Mm -hmm. No, that's a lot. That's, that's good. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's super, it's, it's super good to chart it that way, especially toward, especially because I mean, several things that, that you, that you brought that in terms of cone being and, a, a, a large influence, which comes up in a lot of your work, it's, um, and and just to even connect Cone's concept of the black god to what um, the five percent nation and in the person of Father Allah and others from Rizza to Razkaz. I, I appreciate that, that you mentioned Razkaz. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, people don't mention how, how to kill God, and even even before that, nature of the threat, which oh I would, which I mm-hmm. which which I which I would argue that that how, how to kill God. Is a is a condensed version of nature of the uh, of the, uh, of the threat, but yeah, all of this you know it points it, it points back to even and as you were finishing up, you're talking about you know not speaking to us, but speaking to your colleagues, but not speaking to your colleagues, but speaking to people, speaking to a broader audience, and that kind of comes out in there's a certain shift that wide lies and method is identity, which are both great texts that you do here. You know, I mean, it's really, and there's some of this, there's some of this um, semi, um, well, actually not semi-biographical stuff that comes up in White Lies, not so much in Methodist Identity. Well, I guess in the, in the beginning, yeah. But there's a definite shift in the way you talk about the ish, the same issues you talked about in both of those texts here, mm-hmm. you know, which is this very, very personal, visceral looking at these notions 
of whiteness as they relate to religion. Talk a bit about that, if you will, about yeah. this about this shift in writing that you. Yeah. So the shift was uh, there. There are two motivations for that shift, and one was a kind of a vulgar concern over tone and audience. You know, I wanted this book to reach more people, um, mm-hmm. but then related to that there was a more theoretical reason for it. And, and what I have kind of come to think my hypothesis in so many ways is that hurting people hurt people. You know, I'm, I'm not coming up with that term as a popular quip within self-help circles, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I've mm-hmm. across, um, across the years of my, my research, I've really come to uh, a growing awareness of the the way that what we are bringing to the table, any given table, any given experience, you know, what we're bringing with us in the way of interpersonal feelings, experiences, traumas, that sort of thing has has a really remarkable impact on our outlook, on the way that we handle our research, our data, you know, so this is as true for how we engage, engage with one another in families and in all sorts of uh, relationships as much as it, I think, is true within scholarship. And, and I said, I kind of intimated some of those things in White Lies, and it, there I'm in a rather kind of highfalutin way trying to sketch out um, uh, a model for understanding the impact of our subjective experiences on our um, assessments and our perspectives on seemingly objective topics or what have you. And I apply that to race, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't really do that work in white lies. And in, in a lot of ways I couldn't because I had more growing to do as a researcher. Yeah. But as a person, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's mm-hmm. what I, I think really brought me into um, an awareness that this book was going to have to be much more personal than I thought it was going to be, especially when I started out. Uh, I didn't expect to um, the book to go in nearly such a, a personal way, particularly towards the end. Um, where I'm talking a lot about masculinity, a lot about um, pain and abuse that can arise from folks who are feeling like they um, can't can't fix, can't solve whatever kind of circumstances they're in, um, and that that experience that that knows no racial or gender kind of uh, singularity you know it it's uh promiscuous as as that goes um mm-hmm. it it's essentially how devils get created you know and what i mean by that <laughs> is a, a devil is a thing that doesn't want to take ownership of the thing that it is mm-hmm. and, and and in doing so, it preoccupies itself with all of the things around it. And by things, I'm mostly meaning people, but I'm saying things to be expansive beyond just people. But 
-hmm. A devil is uh, a codependent in a nutshell. A devil is, is someone whose identity is fashioned through a preoccupation with other people and other, other things. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't know, I didn't learn that by studying all of the books that, that have been written about black religion. I, I came mm -hmm. to, and, and the, as the book spells out, I came to a kind of clarity that what I wanted to say about black religion and white religion was that there was a, it kind of exists in history in this codependent fashion that I'm describing, but it wasn't my research that enabled that kind of aha moment. It was my own hardships. It was me coming to realize that I had spent most of my adult life kind of running from my emotional immaturity in a nutshell. I, my dad was a pretty severe alcoholic. He, he even, he drank himself to death, in fact. And I, I knew that, I mean, I've spent my stints in therapy to try and work through those issues, but I had never really done the work of processing how all of those traumas that I experienced as a kid, they, they emotionally stunted my development. And so even as here, I'm someone who has fashioned himself at least as on the right side of racial issues and things like that. And I, and I wouldn't want to like over, I, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that I'm somehow on the other side of that. But nevertheless, like I, I came to realize that my relationship, even in many ways to those justice issues had to do with me preoccupying myself with other people. In some cases, other groups in other cases, other relationships, and I'm speaking again, inclusive of race, but expansive beyond it. So like I, I spent a whole lot of my adulthood unable to really wrestle with how I was feeling in a lot of given moments, especially kind of tense moments, fraught moments, that sort of thing. And so I would preoccupy myself with this, the goings on of other folks. And, and I'd make it so simple as to say that one reason I became like the white guy studying black religion has to do with this very dynamic you know i it it felt safe for me to be in that space and, and i don't regret it or anything like that i'm just trying to analyze it and kind of see where i am how i got there so that i can be more present uh, with myself and subsequently everyone else uh, from here on out and that's really what the the book white devils black gods um offers it at one level is a didactic exploration of the nation of gods and earths uh, a, a black esoteric tradition that isn't a religion they would they would balk at anyone describing them as a religion because they're kind of anti-religious they they think of religion as a particular thing and uh it's been a problem for black folks it's been a problem for everyone and so they, they wouldn't want to frame themselves as that. Nevertheless, they follow numerological uh, insights and esoteric um, traditions of meaning making, as we would call it. And mm -hmm. um, they fashion a, a, a life philosophy around those things. 
and they prioritize learning and they prioritize what they distill all of what I'm saying into this concept of knowledge of self. So to tie it back to the white devils, black gods, a god for the nation of gods and earths is uh, a person, specifically a black man, at least historically within the, the culture, uh, who has obtained uh, an awareness of who it is that they are, both as a point of origin, but also in terms of the culture that has cropped up because of the, this extended study. So there's a historical element. There's a, what we call a, an ontological element or philosophical element. And there are all these uh, kind of basic scientific elements that all must be um, essentially memorized, uh, but also internalized mm -hmm. so that they can be synthesized with new experiences and things like that. Um, and then in doing all of that work, then uh, they're able to call themselves a god. And that uh, god and knowledge of self, to, to have knowledge of self is to see the divinity in oneself and vice versa, but not in a kind of, uh, for the theologically inclined folks listening, not in a pantheistic or panentheistic kind of way necessarily. That kind of organizational structure is kind of beside the point. God mm -hmm. is a marker of uh, capacity and having the agency within oneself, the awareness of that agency as well, to live life on one's own terms. Mm -hmm. And so that is essentially what, what a God is within the tradition. A devil, like I've been saying, is, is a thing that might even at times think that they're doing that kind of work, but it turns out they aren't. They've, they've practiced uh, self-deception, essentially. And the ultimate self-deception -decep within many of these black esoteric traditions, the NGE included, is you know, the, the idea that the black man is not at the bottom of the, the social or biological or uh, cultural or any, they're not at the bottom of any of the totem poles that that Westerners tend to think, uh, tend to place black folks at. In fact, if you look at history, it's the exact opposite. Black folks were the rulers of the, the planet and everyone and everything comes from uh, blackness, black culture. And so uh, to the extent that white folks perceive or, exp you know, I mean, it's, White supremacy as an ideology seems to be gaining in popularity. So there's a lot of more folks that are vocal about thinking that white folks are at the top of the heap. But the, my work's never really worried too much over that group, although it might need to start. My work's been more worried about like how white supremacy as an ideology works within the, the good whites mind, you know, like the ones mm -hmm. who don't think that we're involved in the, these complicated uh, dynamics. And so, um, I think white devils ends up in its kind of reckoning and wrestling with the story that the nation of gods and earths tell about themselves kind of, uh, a reckoning takes hold where I have to, 
think about well, what are the ways that I am this thing that this culture, the subculture, what have you, is suggesting that is my ontological kind of identity. I, to the extent that the black man is God, and part of this also involves buying into the idea that the white man is the devil. And mm-hmm. so um, that is a tough pill to swallow um, mm-hmm. in that to accept the concept, to, to accept the premise rather that me as a white man is a devil is on the one hand a kind of acceptance of my knowledge of self but on the other hand it's also in a psychoanalytic sense it's also positioning me to reinforce uh the notion that i'm somehow a victim or that i am somehow um fatalistically predetermined to live into the trope of a devil. And so in one sense, me owning that kind of idea and running with it might be an expression of taking responsibility, racial responsibility, gender responsibility, what have you. But in another sense, to go back to the point about people hurting people, hurting people, if a devil is a thing that is ultimately hurting because it, it hasn't come to terms with what it essentially is, then me owning up to the idea that I'm a devil simply reinforces the dynamic. And so the book ends up an exploration of the whether or not we can get out of that dynamic. Some people might say the, the Hegelian dialectic and can we escape it? And this mm-hmm. book is open to that kind of critique as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because there's uh, you know, the way the way in which you construct the concept of the white devil in the text from from not locating it historically, it's its origin historically in the teachings of um Master W. D. Fard Muhammad and propagated by Elijah Muhammad, but you take it further when you push it back and you say, Well, this concept has existed for quite a long time. It's it's available for the NOI to use um, as as a way to describe what people who are socially constructed as white in this particular society are susceptible to. You know, because even even when you start with RZA, when when the, with um with with RZA's analysis, and as you said, to go back into the 120 being that which perpetually is revisited conceptually and applied differently than it, and it was in the late 80s when Big Daddy Kane picked it up. You know, um, mm-hmm. what 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 a person like Jay Electronica does with it is is rooted in that, but it's very different. Wu Tang coming in the late 90s, doing what they did, do it very do it differently as well. But how but how RZA makes the point that well, look, um, there is a choice that one has to make um, and one can choose to be complicit or one can choose to, as you pointed to knowledge of having knowledge of self understanding. Well, this is the history that has made me who I'm becoming at this point. Now mm-hmm. there can be a fork in the road. And then, and then even, even to go back to, I think this is interesting as well, because in black theology and black power, 
Cone makes this point, and many, many people don't remember it, but it's, it's, it's at the end of the text when he basically explains, well, his his philosophy of race and says, well, you know what, there are black men and white skins, there are white men and black skins and all this sort of stuff like that. And people forget about that, you know, and I and, and, I, and I and I think what you're bringing up has you start the text and then you go further and talk about the explanation of your meeting with the, with the gods in New York and and how you were confronted with you have to understand that I am a god. You know, all of these things come into play um, with this notion that will these notions of of race, especially whiteness, are physical and conceptual at the same time, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah, it's 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 really striking the way you did it. So I'm really compelled by this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I think you're hitting the nail on the head with uh, the the physical and the conceptual and kind of breaking down whatever kind of sacred profane binary distinctions typically guide our discussions of these topics as well as how we're thinking about these topics uh, the most important of which to my work you know has always been that the most fundamental distinction at least as i understand it which is the sacred profane distinction so it's not that i'm merely using that analogically but i mm -hmm. think that 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 dividing line between something that's sacred over here that is set apart and usually esteemed in a positive way against the profane over here that which would contaminate the sacred or the special thing over here that basic distinction plays out in myriad ways you know and think about like a a, a spiraling double helix, you know, like a fractal version of a double helix. That's mm -hmm. that that's spinning. That's kind of how that uh, dis that initial distinction kind of radiates into all these other distinctions. And it, the the gods, you know, they really force a confrontation with anyone who would take them seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, they force a confrontation with the the speaking from the a western kind of monotheistic paradigm not to say that everyone is is a believer uh, but western monotheism has been so pervasive that it's hard for us to even the, for the atheist you know an atheist is a not theist so an mm -hmm. atheist definition of self is coming by way of an antagonism towards the believer Right. So, like, Westerners, because of monotheism, at least I think, have a very difficult um, time trying to escape that basic binary. Mm -hmm. And the gods, the gods don't. You know, the gods are mm -hmm. living in this space where the the metaphysical and the physical kind of coalesce and intermingle in such a way that. I, I mean, like, folks, gods who are out writing books and thinking and constantly building on these topics and stuff, yeah, they're maintaining a, 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 a distinction for the sake of analysis between, like, the things we that exist but that we can't see and the things that exist that we can see. But mm -hmm. in general, the gods are doing um, kind of alchemical processes, you might think of. They're, they're yes. able to turn 
uh, water to wine, or they're able to uh, make a dollar out of fifteen cents. You know, and, mm-hmm. and they're—I I don't mean to sound romantic about it either. It's more that it's because of the way that the one twenty works. The one twenty being the kind of guide, guiding um, text mm-hmm. from which um, your experiences as a god are made possible. Um, and there, concretely, there are a set of lessons that um, Elijah Muhammad kind of organized from the teachings of Fard Muhammad, but then they've been kind of distilled and repackaged over time through uh, different transmissions, you know, like hand-to-hand, uh, word-of-mouth, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And now they're available in different iterations online as well. Sure. But um, they... Uh, they offer an opportunity to essentially undermine the basic Western taxon, you know, the, mm-hmm. that most fundamental distinction between the sacred and the profane. And for that, I really appreciate it. Another uh, group that is connected to all of these traditions that we're talking about, the Nation of Islam, you know, a much more prominent, well-known example of the a group that is born from the teachings of Fard Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear if you listen to um, Louis Farrakhan these days, or if you listen to any of the other ministers, that there is not an easy distinction between what exists somewhere else and what exists here in a way that I think is, is productive. It's super generative. If, if I could be so, um, simple in characterizing where race comes from. I think it comes from this distinction between what we can't see and what we can see. That's how the, yes. that's how it functions in our head and how it, there, there was space in our heads for it to emerge in the way that it has emerged today. And I, I am super, super motivated by uh, fighting against the tendency to organize the world into um, those things we can see versus those things we can't see. And that for a white Southern straight guy uh, to be confronted with uh, hardened, I don't know if that's a, a, the right word, but, but the, the God who I describe, who I talk about in the book, who I met uh, at Allah school in Mecca, the, the home base, uh, Axis Mundi for the Nation of Gods and Earths. Mm-hmm. He was hardened. That's the his aesthetic, you know. His, um, you could say street, but I I don't think that's fair. Although that, that would be a an adequate caricature of how he might be imagined in a lot of folks' minds. But my point is, the dude looked like he could handle business, yeah. and <laughs> like he had been through some things, right? And on top of that. He he's dressed, you know, like in a in a hip hop kind of way. He's not super dapper, but he it's clear that there was some style that he like he thought about what he was going to wear, you know. Um, but my sensibilities have been organized uh, more so than many people's in terms of this initial binary. This is sacred profane binary that uh, I was talking about a minute ago. And so when he's in front of me. Say, look, the thing you need to understand about this moment right now is you're welcome here. You're welcome in this space so long as you know that I am a God. 
Yeah. A, here's a black dude from the streets talking to me, a, a pr somewhat provincial, at least in where I, my point of origin, mm -hmm. Southern white straight dude who has, has always both celebrated and appreciated black cultural expression, but also, you know, born and baked in a racist society. And so it, in many respects, this was a difficult proposition for me to, to take in. Yeah. Like, you know, and it, I think is mostly difficult because of this sacred profane distinction that's, that operates so wantonly in so many spaces it wasn't that oh i i was way too racist to think of him as divine and it wasn't that i'm way too uh um reverential to uh, apply race to my understanding of that either it was all of it came together in this experience in this ethnographic experience where i knew that in order for me to learn and study about this group or about him, about whatever might unfold from it, I had to submit to this idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd spent the last 10 years fashioning myself as an atheist as well. I no longer think of myself as an atheist but because of the journey that this book took me down. I now think of myself as a recovering mesotheist. I'm, I'm now someone who recognizes that I, uh, I spent a lot of time hating God because part of me hated myself. And, and that, um, that kind of awareness wouldn't have been possible for me, maybe ever. Uh, it wasn't self-help. It wasn't therapy sessions. It wasn't group therapy sessions that allowed that awareness to take hold in me. It was this meeting, this theophany, as I call it, with, mm -hmm. um, with this God in Harlem. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, and the way you told the story was was actually super compelling and everything. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was truly because this is so much it's, it's so much here. I'm going to go I'm going to go back and make a few comments, then go forward and ask you a question. But just but yeah, I mean, getting getting into this whole notion of this sacred and profane, the kind of the kind of dissipates when it comes to traditions such as the Hebrew Israelite tradition, such as Moorish science, such as, you know, I actually, um, behind you, Mary, I mean, I'd have seen it when we, we were on camera, but, but, um, behind, I have, um, a copy of a circle seven Moorish Quran from the Moorish mm. Temple of America on top of a copy of message to the black man, kind of, kind of just indicating, well, this is what, this is what Fard and, um, what, what Matt, what master Fard Muhammad and, the honorable Elijah Muhammad were pulling from, mm -hmm. you know, all of these traditions. And this just reminded me of, you know, because I, I learned, I didn't know that you were, that you were, that you were raised disciples of Christ before I read this. Like, I didn't know that you had that background, I guess, because, um, I've known from when I've known you, I, I knew, um, atheist Chris Driscoll, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even know that you had a background in, um, in that type of Christianity, I didn't know if you had a religious background at all. Um, but but yeah, and and just to just to see this come out, and even just hearing you talk about this reminded me of the disgust that some of my friends in my Pentecostal charismatic church, which my uncle was the pastor at, they the the, the disgust they had 
when I brought in Killer Priest, Evie Mental, to church and said, well, this is this is actually Christian theology, you know, mm-hmm. and and the disgust and the disgust wasn't necessarily around, well, you know, this this doctrine is wrong. The disgust was this idea, these ideas that we deemed are so transcendent. Now they're just too worldly. Mm-hmm. This was the issue. And then if we tra- if we trace that back, we have, we have, we of course see notions of white devils from Hume to Defoe to everybody yeah, all yeah, yeah. in, in the mix of that. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. So it's really, it's really, really um, phenomenal the way you put all this together. The question I was going to ask you was, um, when you talked about your formative development and you talked about, you know, listening to different MCs as a kid, um, a lot of the ones you mentioned weren't people that many people normally associate with the NGE or NOI or anything. Now, some were, but mm-hmm. but but so so what was your connection to that sort of um, rhetoric in in rap music in your formative years yeah so um the shortest answer would probably be the roots Mm. the the roots sonically were a segue for me between the southern styles and and artists that i was most uh accustomed to and the east coast boom bap aesthetic or the like uh wu-tang uh, mm-hmm. aesthetic and, and all of the sounds from from the northeast and then i was also uh, always and maybe in part because of the influences from west coast onto this what becomes a southern rap music mm-hmm. scene um i was always kind of interested in west coast rap but the answer i'd say isn't so much in the the, the sonics of it or, or the beats but the lyrics i was always just really really um fond of lyrical prowess mm-hmm. and so one of my most uh revered artists in my own head you know as a fan is actually someone who i i had the good fortune to work with a number of years ago bun b mm-hmm. and yes bun b to me is one of the greatest storytellers uh in all of i don't know music recording over the last 50 years he just tells these stories that are so vivid and uh, i think it's because he's he's trying to catch up with scarface who tells this similar kind of rich story but also has all these philosophical elements he adds to it and stuff like that but for me buns just kind of resonated with me and so um Another way you could think of the bridge for me would be Big Pimpin, his collab mm-hmm. that he did with Jay Z. Jay, yeah. So then I started listening to more uh, of Jay Z and and just kind of introducing myself to more and more East Coast rap. But also, as I started studying rap, there was a definite, like there is in all scholarships, no matter the data, there's an East Coast kind of bias. And so. Yeah. I uh, got put on to a lot of who are now some of my favorites of all time, you know, like Mob Deep and, and folks like that. Who mm-hmm. I that came by way of just kicking it with other scholars who were from the East Coast or who were prioritizing one thing or another over uh, yet other things. But the 
Bun, it turns out, would end up teaching a course with Anthony Penn, my advisor. And uh, so I was a TA for him. And that course was all about religion. Mm -hmm. And um, my interest in the gods didn't come so much through my interest in any in hip hop as much as it came through my theological sensibilities that are very Fourier Bachian. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. That's so I could geek out on talking about this, you know, because yeah. again, that I wanna I wanna fuck with that distinction, right. those distinctions that we maintain between like uh, the, the stuff that should or shouldn't go together. And so mm -hmm. for me, uh, my theological uh, interests and thinking give way to what kind of musical choices I might make on any given day. And my music might shape uh, my theological outlook, you know, but I've always been drawn to Feuerbach and um, Feuerbach, you know, offers a model for thinking about theology as anthropology. And so because of my interest in Feuerbach, I, as soon as I heard about the nation of gods and earths, I was, I was really, really interested in um, the basic question of, well, if, if they don't have a thing or worry over religion, why bother using the word God? Yeah. You know? And so I started exploring it that way. Um, but I also came into closer proximity with a number of gods. And so I got to build with them on a number of occasions and thought that they were super, super thoughtful. They, even to this day, I was thinking about this earlier this morning that the folks who I follow on social media, whose uh, posts I probably value the most are gods on the corner, you know, who are using their, their phone to kind of broaden the corner that they're on, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're organic intellectuals who are coming outside the box. Like half the time they'll sit, they'll write something that is frustrating to me for one reason or another, but it, it's always kind of an opportunity yeah. for growth in the yeah. way that, you know, the, they're the gods. And then there's dream Hampton dream Hampton does the same exact thing. So right. um, I absolutely love dream Hampton uh, on social media because she's always got like the, the right combination of ideas that push me to be a better thinker. And I don't mean in an activist kind of way. I just mean in general, as a human being, she's yeah. just like, her awareness. She's like maybe the best, in my opinion, best anthropologist on the planet. But mm -hmm. that's a, that's a digression. Um, my, what was I saying? Uh, you were talking, you were talking about, um, Feuerbach and you were talking about this connection between theology and anthropology, which, which, which shows up in, in these sorts of moments like dream hand. And I think that's where you were getting it. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, so the, the third, and this is what I wanted to make sure that I touched on in our conversation. The, th the third kind of big reason why I got interested in the NGE is because I'm a student of whiteness. I'm trying to figure out where it comes from. I'm trying to think about how we should or should not think about whiteness. When is it appropriate to race 
a topic, you know, what to mm-hmm. use it as an analytic when it is inappropriate, that sort of thing. And so one of the most peculiar things I think of that something I'm extremely fascinated by in my research is we do not know where white people come from. Mm-hmm. And that they offer an answer. The NGE by way of FARD offer an answer to the question of where white people come from. And I'm not being flippant here in the, my tone is changing because I'm so enthusiastic about this topic, Sure, but essentially the scientific explanation across the last hundred years has not really been a scientific explanation. It's been a non-explanation. And much of what uh, Monica Miller and I wrote together in Method as Identity tried to get at the, the history of the field of philology and then the study of religion, where we um, are um, offering, I guess, snapshots of what was then a preoccupation with finding the origins of whiteness, white people. Like, mm-hmm. I can't stress enough how literal I am being when I'm, explain, when I'm describing this right now to, for the listeners. We do not have an explanation of where white people come from in history or culturally right. or uh, geospatially. You know, we don't know where we come from. Mm-hmm. And the, the running explanation for the last hundred years has been that uh, latitude determines phenotype. Mm-hmm. But the, that's what we get taught in grade school and things like that. But that's simply not true. And there are a number of studies that make it clear that it's not true. But a cursory glance at all of the brown people that exist in higher and both extremely lower latitudes, both, I guess, um, makes it clear that that is a fallacious position to maintain. It's a non-scientific position to maintain. However, it was better than the position that was popular in the 18th and 19th century among most white scholars who many of them were interested in answering the question of where we come from. They would have been happy to say we don't know, um, although many of them came to the conclusion that we were from northern uh, India. Uh, It'd be a tangent for me to give the details of that, but um, essentially the effort to figure out where we came from got uh, maybe was inspired by, but also kind of got infused with kind of classic modern white supremacy in a way that um, made it gauche by the middle of the 20th century for anyone to be looking for the origin any longer. But mm-hmm. across the last century, or I guess the 1900 or the 19th century, there were scores and scores of scholars had their opinions about where white people come from. Now we don't know. And now more or less, the only people who talk in terms of where white people come from offer any compelling arguments or even discuss it at all are either uh, folks who tend to get lumped into some version of a racial nationalist uh, as black or brown nationalists or something of that sort and outright white supremacists. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that answering the question of where white people come from would help to heal the psychic uh, identities of white folks in a way that would mitigate the effects of white supremacy. So my interests in the question are not born 
uh, out of trying to support either tacitly or explicitly the ideology of white supremacy. I actually think that the 19th century, the racist 19th century folks, they're in this sense, you, you might think of their heart being in the right place because their efforts to look for where they were from would have had a positive impact on how they interacted with the rest of the world. I'm not That's saying right. it did, but I'm saying that it would have had that project continued, but for lots of different reasons, um, it didn't. And so that's a convoluted way of explaining my, my third and perhaps most powerful interest in the nation of gods and earths. They offer a compelling, well, compelling may not be the right word for everyone, but they offer an explanation uh, that is, uh, by their estimation, historical and scientific for where white people come from. And part of the research I did for this book was really born of my effort to kind of proof text the, that story. I, mm -hmm. I wanted to know how much of that story could be corroborated with scientific uh, explorations or with history or what have you. And at the end of the day, I think they might be onto something, but I don't have enough evidence to, to support the position that they maintain. So. Right. Right. And see, I think and I think that's another genius of this text is that many, many texts that deal with the deal with theories of religion would simply find a way to reduce the story of Yakub mm -hmm. and, and say, OK, well, this is this is this is just we can we can allegorize this and we can do that and we can and we can pass it off as simply just something that may indicate something that's broader but the story itself we don't have to take seriously you're saying no 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 and you even begin the text by saying look you know you have to take the no that the that that the euro body which is the or the euro psyche which we which we've labeled white we have to take that no seriously and mm -hmm. And if that's what's being said, then no, now we got it. Now we got to really consider that. So mm -hmm. I love that perspective. You well, know, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. And I, I think that I, I, I give space for the position, uh, the, the story of Yakub or the myth of Yakub or what, whatever you want to call it. I give space for it in the text for all the reasons you're describing. But uh, like I just mentioned, I'm compelled by it. Sure. <laughs> like, sure. I, I think it I, I've been looking for all of uh, any kind of explanation of where white people come from. I've been looking at uh, research on it for 15 years. And this I can say is as yeah. compelling. And no, it's the most compelling explanation I've come across. It doesn't answer all the questions by any means, right. but right. <laughs> uh, it, it outpaces all of the competing narratives. Yeah. And that to me is remarkable, but yeah. it, it, for reasons connected to how I was describing the God who I met with in Harlem that day, you know, he doesn't look like he would be running with this set of tools. Right, right. And yet he's out doing everything that my colleagues and I have, even the, the tools to uh, of, uh, excavate for ourselves. Yeah. I mean that real literally thinking about disciplinary housing and the way that train PhD training unfolds. Some of the questions that I'm asking in this book are bad questions. 
Like right. I'm not even supposed to be at, like you just described. We're not supposed to entertain some of these positions. We're supposed right. to handle them with, with white gloves and yeah. respect them as historical artifacts, but we're yeah. not supposed to entertain them uh, as anything that might have a larger bearing on who it is that we are. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what you've done, and what you've done here is just so, so different from that, you know, and yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, really dope. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the stuff you brought up, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to teaching this in the philosophy of religion and just, and just, and just really letting the text teach itself, you know, I'm, and I'm looking forward to just putting this into this format, you know, and just saying, you know, yeah, we don't have to think about philosophy of religion the way we've been taught to think about it. We 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 actually going to be reading the lessons in that class. You that's know? wonderful. I mean, thank you for bringing my work into it also. But I think that's absolutely phenomenal that that you're doing that in the classroom. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's 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 they about to get it. I mean, we all are going to be challenged. You know, <laughs> you know, we all are we all are going to get it. So yeah, it's it's um. It's really, really good that you've brought all this together in these in these ways that, you know, it's 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 nimble. I mean, it's provocative. It's it's intense. You know, I mean, I'm even really, really to use your word, I'm really even compelled by the way that the, the way that you connected NGE to Akhenaten. In 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 this whole brief period in Egyptian history where where monotheism becomes this 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 thing and like well literally we'll, we'll, we'll literally the black or brown or so-called black or brown human is the god that made this idea you know mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah i appreciate that that a uh, funny uh, uh, in both senses of the term story about uh, the the section that you're referencing you know that was the part that people didn't want me to include in the book <laughs> of course they didn't, right? <laughs> right, I, I, right. Like so, I it, there's a section of this book which is one of my favorite parts. Which is uh, I've been teaching that basic story for years, but I tell the story, which is a genealogy that that connects, uh, like like John was saying, Akhenaten to the god, the contemporary gods on the, on the corner, the gods inspiring and and the subject of this book. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's as useful a genealogy as any intellectual or theological genealogy that anyone can offer that might connect Paul Tillich to Ludwig Feuerbach or Frederick yeah. Schleiermacher or what, or what have you, you know, right. this is what we do right. as, as, as scholars of religion, particularly as folks like you and I who teach in the philosophy of religion, things like that, like genealogy is what we like, yeah. it's our bread and butter. Mm -hmm. But but some genealogies end in a way that it sits with the kind of what what we deem to be appropriate, and some don't. And this right. is a this genealogy is one that seeks to make it more plausible this connection between blackness, black men, and God. And the the way it happens is through the person of Pharaoh, you know. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like the the through line of the genealogy, but. Right. No, a lot of folks were th worried that this would derail any kind of uh, um, relevance or uh, any kind of respect that the reader might garner in the, uh, well, for me. 
Is that mm-hmm. oh well, you, this is a bridge too far kind of thing? I'm like mm-hmm. no, this is this is it. Like this this yeah. is it in a nutshell, you know. Like yeah. here here is a contemporary black esoteric tradition offering an explanation for what we would perceive we being like Westerners or folks trained in the study of religion to be a theological position. But no, here is a story that undermines that basic distinction. You know it. Right. What when they say that they're a god, they're not making a theological pronouncement. They are making right. a statement about their identity, right. and and that shift I think is really useful. So I I sought to leave it in, and I'm glad to hear that it that you are uh, are appreciated appreciating it also. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. It was. I mean, and 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 I and I'm so glad to see it because you know this is this is kind of along the lines of. The work that Dr. Welsing does in, in ISIS mm-hmm. papers. I yes. mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the work that Ivan von Sertemann did and they, and they came before. Cause right. I'm working, I'm working with a lot, a lot of that stuff right now for a text I'm it. doing, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, people are like, Oh, why you want to talk about that? I'm like, why not? Mm-hmm. Why not? You know, you know, can you, can you, they did come before Columbus. Yeah. You know, that like, yes. <laughs> it, they did. Right. They did. Like and Columbus even, uh, writes about this in in his uh his memoirs it, right yeah his yeah. his log books his journal entries you know like yeah. and, and this is not a de- this is not a tangent from what we're talking about you know this is no. what we're talking about that who has the authority to shape knowledge in a right. nutshell that's what right. we're talking about that's what it that's what's so amazing about the study of black religion about black thought etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. like therein lies opportunity to recast what we know and how we know it and and i think that yeah. von sertema uh the isis papers um mm-hmm. uh, those are examples of folks who are I- extremely audacious and i think they're going to come to be much more respected in the coming decades than they have been in these last two and three decades oh yeah oh yeah it's coming, especially as especially as archaeological and anthropological evidence, even go back to Feuerbach, be, becomes aligned with what they've been laying out for mm-hmm. for 40, 50 years. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Dr. Ben Yokanan's another, I mean, Chick Ankhdiop, um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Jose Pimienta Bay was one of my favorites, who actually is a member of the Morris Science Temple of America, who teaches um who who who's, who's in the Africana Studies program at Berea. He's one oh, of my favorites, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. I mean, his book, Othello's Children in, in the New World. But, you know, it's funny because all of this really even points back. I have to to get my father this book because because he, you know, and my father's a very, very has always been a very, very progressive individual. Um, you know, when, you know, he's in terms of his political and social views about justice, you know, and. And we had a discussion. I don't know how we even got on this, but you know, we had a discussion. We were talking, and is and we were talking about Jesus, and 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 we were talking about well, the true history of Jesus, even to go back to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's text, um, the call the true history of Jesus. We weren't talking about that, but that kind of brings this to mind. I was telling him, you know, well, you know, you know, Dad, Jesus probably more or less look closer to you than he did to Caesar Broguer, you know, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and my dad was like, I'm not sure if that's true. Case in point, this is why we need to talk more about this information. 
-hmm. you know you know because as as progressive as my father is politically and in terms of revolution because he was damn near a black panther in the 60s um mm -hmm. he as a person who converted to a type of pentecostal christianity couldn't see that mm -hmm. and and that was foreign information and i said this is interesting mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it is it is yeah i think that's one thing that i mean the race analytic is we're just beginning to see and feel the effects of what the race analytic offers Mm -hmm. You know, and the, I don't mean the racist analytic. We've seen that for too long from yeah. too many places. But like thinking in terms of black religion, thinking mm -hmm. in terms of white religion, thinking in terms of uh, gendered religion as well. You know, thinking in terms of like what kind of gender norms are operative in this religious context or this other religious context, et cetera, et cetera. That ha we're just now getting the, the first fruits of, of that tree. And yeah. I'm super excited about where it's going to continue to to take us. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I mean, the road is, you know, if we do the work, the road, and, and if we let the work present itself and not try to tailor it as we've been told to, you know, we're going to, it's going to be some really good results come out of that, I think. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, I think the the book the other kind of angle that the book takes is at the the what does that work look like you know all is a kind of choice point for all of us anyone mm -hmm. interested in what we're talking about but also like mm -hmm. folks who might not even be interested in what we're talking about but at, like where my responsibility involves that uh question of uh where we're headed or what we're doing has to really involve white masculinity and mm -hmm. and the what I think was really eye opening for me is that and here I know there's going to be a lot of folks who don't like this, but this book really comes down on the side of interpersonal growth is what's going to help uh, racial tensions and justice issues more so than structural changes, you mm -hmm. know, and and, mm -hmm. and that. Um, I didn't expect that. I didn't go in that direction to be provocative. I went in that direction because that's where the data led me. You know, like white folks are not treating black folks. I mean, in general, of course, uh, as less than or as uh, unworthy or as uh, it, fill in the blank because of it as a very specific sort of um, hatred of the other that rather hatred of the other is born from self-hatred right and and that's me i'm not trying to negate the the structural issues or the inter uh interpersonal issues like white to black or black to white you know like right. across race that right. are very real of course they're salient and, and exist for for all of us and that's that is an important site for uh, actions to unfold for sure but i devils like uh, going back to the the beginning of what i was saying you know devils are made because of self-hatred they're not made because they hate god they're right. made they're made because they hate that they aren't god mm -hmm. 
And that's a subtle but important distinction to make. And I, th I hope that the book contributes to um, more, in this, my case, more white men coming to do the interpersonal work that will make us better partners to yeah. predominantly white wives or white husbands or whatever, but not, uh, again, I'm, I'm allowing for exceptions here, but um, like imagine how many fewer Karens black folks would have to put up with on a day in and day out basis if the white men in those white women's lives were treating them better. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that is a panacea. In fact, in the book, in several places, and I'll repeat here, I'm not saying it's a panacea. It's not a panacea, but no. it, it, but it is a space where uh, concrete action, where, where, where I have, as the gods would say, like an awareness of the square that I'm standing in. Mm. I'm aware of the boundaries of that square. Mm -hmm. Can I can I get on the phone with Joe Biden right now and change the world? No, right. but I can. I can be conscious and consciously aware of the folks who I'm interacting with day in and day out, and I can have a positive impact on them, and that I can trust will radiate outwardly. It's not going to end police involved shootings of unarmed black men or boys you know mm. it's not going to end it no but it's going to make a dent i think and a, an example of this someone i follow on um instagram uh, is a, a yoga instructor named named jazz mm -hmm. porter, porter i believe who i think she's doing one of the most incredible things right now she's teaching mindfulness exercises to the houston police department cool that's good. Now talk about a labor of love, but like, right. She's, she, she's a, a black woman, young black woman. She, she kind of wears her heart on her sleeve in the social media kind of way that we all do these days. So like her mm -hmm. politics are out there. They're open and explicit and her, her, her religion, call it that, or her like anti-religion mm -hmm. religion, her, um, mindfulness sensibilities, her Buddhist influences and things like that are such that she knows the answer to hate, the answer to violence and suffering is love. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that is vacuous in a moment when so many people on the opposite side of whatever side one of each of us find ourselves on seem like they don't give a shit. Yeah. But like she, she knows that increasing the bandwidth that cops have to work with in like high stress moments right. is not a matter of whether I'm deciding if this cop is good or bad, if he's a white supremacist or a black nationalist or something in the middle, mm -hmm. it involves whether or not this person has had enough rest. Yes. Yes. You know, like, yes. and that, that was a, I've, I've learned a lot from, from watching this initiative that she's done unf unfold, you know, mm -hmm. like my first book starts with Darren Wilson and uh, yeah, the cop uh, from Ferguson, the shooter. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I wish in some respects that I could go back and rewrite that book, not to give more attention to it, but to, 
to th think about, and here's really a, a an important um, aspect of what this book came to be. Like, how do we open ourselves to have compassion for fo for folks who are the embodiment of evil? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's that's some of the productive uh, pieces of thinking about white devils. Um, Devils are like the usefulness of that term is that devils don't deserve our sympathy, you know? Right. Um, but something about our own well being is wrapped up in whether or not we still have the space to give sympathy to the people who don't deserve it. That's right. And that's a fucked up proposition. Yeah. It's, it's like no one deserves to be in the position to do that kind of work, especially black folks, you know, uh, on top of like, I'm not in the like subjective space to be offering that as a suggestion or whatever. Like, uh, I just mean it in the most human terms possible, like perpetrators ought not, uh, or rather victims ought not have to do the emotional labor to support their perpetrators. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it seems to me, and this is kind of where I end it, the book on, it seems to me that the question of whether or not that's the case is kind of beside the point in the ontology in which we all find ourselves. Right. And that's where I, I, I'd like to shut up and, and hear from you in terms of process thought and like thinking about how, how we can be attentive to um, our traumas in a way that, you know, doesn't bounce the tennis ball back to the other side, you know, just that, that, that dialectic, you know, like what, what can we do in order to uh, transcend, you know, maybe the best word and the worst word altogether. How, <laughs> how can we transcend those circumstances? Yeah. You know, um, th this is all great stuff. And I've, everything you're laying out here you know toward toward the conclusion of the text and i've been thinking about this um in in relation and this is sort of a process concept um it's something well i it really actually it really really is a process concept um something i've been referring to as intersection i-n-n-e-r section mm -hmm. um and you know as a as opposed to the atomistic view of intersection to where well entities have their own separate existence and they only come into contact by collision whether collisions are favorable or antagonistic in mm -hmm. the notion of intersection which is what a lot of dei efforts are based on um mm -hmm. there's this there's this presupposition that the entities coming into contact are fundamentally different um and in this notion of intersection, which is something that even that even even um, Victor Montejo is talking about in his new book Myalog, which actually, if Sunnis listen, y'all was supposed to send me a desk copy. I ain't get this shit, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just gonna buy it because it's because it's because it's great. But um, but there's but but he's arguing this notion of well, instead of thinking about things in the way to where difference to where things are fundamentally different. Now, th 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 this is not. This is not negating that things are that, that things have some differences, but many of the differences that we've that we're trying to mitigate are differences that the constructions of colonialism have created. 
and and uh, Montejo is arguing, and in some ways I am as well. Um, let's talk about what Whitehead may refer to as not a contradiction, but a contrast. A painting is a contrast of various colors, but they come together as one thing. Mm. What if we were to reconceptualize intersections as intersections? Um, you know, and I and I and I think you're sort of doing this work here in the text because when you're when you allow the God to challenge your whiteness and what and what society has in, has constructed you to be and you've inherited from the society in which we're in, in which we both are a part of, when you begin to challenge that. You break down this inner this intersection between whiteness and the God, and there's a humanity that that steps out or that begins to step out with, of course, challenges. But so I think about it in those terms. Um, what and and, and yeah, even to go back to your to your point, I don't know if this will really happen from. A political standpoint from you know from the government i don't know i don't know if it will happen and this is why i like that you took this this interpersonal route with the text and you end off there because maybe this is what needs to happen inner you know but for me i talk about that as intersections you know looking at the the organic wholeness of humanity, which is very diverse, but looking at is as not having to necessarily be antagonistic, although it is different. And in that, we can look at the structures by which we've 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 constructed difference and see, okay, well, maybe the ways in which we've constructed difference is a big part of the problem, not not necessarily the individuals or entities we're talking about themselves. If that makes mm. some sense. Oh man, it it resonates really powerfully with me. Um, I love the the idea of inner section. I it I'll, I I'm gonna cite you uh, for it or with it. Word uh, word. I'll do the same with you because I'm I'm uh, writing a book on this now, and and this book is gonna be in the in 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 uh, the bibliography. So yeah, <laughs> it's definitely mutual. Yeah, I I, th I think there is an interiority that brings us all into i don't even know i i'll get new age with it yeah, it brings us yeah. closer to source energy yeah it, or or god or the the universe or, or what have you there's a part of us that is every other one of us already connected you know and i personally think that 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 connection is exemplified in all of the psychic abilities that we see that most of us don't have, but that some people do have and that mm -hmm. are quantifiable as well. You know, psychic abilities are not uh, smoke and mirrors, although they can be. But yes. um, I mean, we got evidence that shows that there are people who can, um, uh, who are gifted at things like telepathy and, and stuff like that. And for me, intersection offers a model for being attentive to all those weird things as well as also all the things we've been talking about as far as social difference and uh, mm -hmm. how we can offer uh, how we can understand how the world works or how the universe works in a way that um, both it, it, like is keeping it real so to speak as yeah. far as like our experiences but that also doesn't succumb to um the, the the sheer weight of those experiences 
in mm-hmm. in ways that might uh, play out for some folks as uh, bitterness and sullenness, or or for other folks that might play out as uh, a, a nagging demand to police other people. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it it the inner world that we know so little about. Why? Because all of these white folks who've been studying and who we've been turning to for answers and authority on what the world is, you know, for nearly 500 years now, they've been telling us it's all bullshit. Yeah. Yes. And it's, I mean, there's a reason that we're having so many challenges with so many things right now is because we have uh, divested ourselves of access to the space that might offer recourse on a lot of these issues. And I think it's the, the intersection, or as uh, another of my teachers, Jeff Kripal, talks often, like the, the inner world or the inner space, you know, that's offered and that can be um, heightened through things like meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, in, I've gone... It seems nearly a 180 in a lot of my teaching. I literally taught a class. One of the classes I taught this last semester was a mindfulness class where I had this student sit down every single day, every weekday at least, across the semester, and they had to meditate. And we would teach other different ways of meditating and stuff like that. That's a far cry from where I was a few years ago when I would have been embarrassed to have even a colleague do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think... The reason for the about face has everything to do with following the data, so to speak. I'm, I'm, I'm not being flippant or wanton in my charge to teach, you know, it's because I think with respect to how I have handled uh, some versions of the sacred profane distinction, I've been wrong. It's that simple. I've, I've mm-hmm. been I've been wrong to assume that. If only I got the right set of distinctions, then everything, then the world would make sense to me or the world would be a better place. You know, the, the thing that I was closed off from was the inner section. You know, I've, I've taught classes on intersectionality, but I would have never thought that that class or those classes would be a space where I could bring in mindfulness exercises, for instance, whereas now... Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't teach a class on intersection intersectionality without. Well, now also specifically bringing in your concept of intersectionality, but do, mm-hmm. doing what I think might be the some of the work of intersectionality. That is yeah. mindfulness, like for folks who have a prayer life. Like, how is your prayer life? How is that prayer life informing uh, your? day-to-day temperament and sensibilities like where's where is it impacting your capacity for self-discipline and things like that these are questions i would have balked at asking my students even uh three years ago now they're some of the first questions i ask and i i stay like checked in with them you know I'm, i'm not out to offend and i'm certainly not interested in uh maintaining any sort of hegemonic position there's no one tradition that reigns supreme, but what I'm uh, slowly exercising the demon or the devil w- from within me of is the assumption that somehow the Western kind of atheistic position is the one that's going to reign supreme because mm-hmm. it it it's gotten us to where we are. But clearly, it 
it, it's uh, we're in that classic kind of point where that is a lot of uh, a lot of children of alcoholics and other dysfunctions that parents uh, put onto children. A lot of those children grow up uh, in a position where their coping mechanisms that got them out of that dangerous environment no longer equip them to to thrive wherever they've arrived to. And that's kind of where I was several years ago. And thank goodness I found uh, adult children of alcoholics. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have any of this stuff to to be talking about. Yeah. And I'm and I'm really glad that you go into that deeply in the text, you know, and you talk about the effect that it has on you. You talk about what you what those experiences, what, you know, the tendencies of children who are of, of children of alcoholics have and you pointed that a few of them that you have and things like that and and yeah i mean this is a really vulnerable text and i think that this is just a good model of one model of how we can go forward with this in this discipline so i think it's it's really really refreshing because yeah you know i you know there was a point to where I in many ways was like you, you know, it's like, well, you know, you grew up this way, then you turn away from it. Then, you know, now when my mother, there was a time when I would argue with my mother about, well, well, you know, why are you praying? Now I just leave her alone. I'm like, you know what? That seems to make your life better. Right. That, yeah. That's yeah. fine. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, mm -hmm. you're happy. You're happier than me probably. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah, do it, do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What sort of peace uh, is on offer? You know, and, and for me, I spent a lot of time thinking, not really thinking, but feeling, yeah. feeling like if only I could think enough about one thing or another, that mm -hmm. would somehow uh, change how I was feeling. And it turns out that's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And we learn that by growing, mm -hmm. you know, we, yeah. learn, we do, we do learn because, yeah, we're not. When when we made it, we're not we're we're not the same people, not at all. You know, you know, you know, you know. There's 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 elements of that there, but no, nah, we we've definitely we've grown. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, our, our whole circle. You know, I mean, I'm the, I'm thinking of 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 all of us from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, it's been it's been good to see it. It's been good to see, it, and it's been it's been good to get this text. But before we get out of here, you know. Let everybody give us some some final thoughts and where you can be contacted and you know. Yeah, so um my website is Dr. Christopher Driscoll. Uh I know is uh Christopher Driscoll PhD.com. And that's uh the probably the easiest way to learn more about my work. Uh but I'm available on uh, on Twitter at White Lies Book. And um, I am always available on email. I, I love to to hear from folks who want to talk shop, uh, especially students. Uh, so please feel free to email me at um, cmd413 at gmail.com. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, or Dr. Christopher Driscoll at gmail.com both of those will will get to me um and i'm about to start a youtube channel too so stay on the lookout for that uh, uh very dope yeah very yeah dope. that's uh i'm i'm thinking of the last kind of the 
I'm, I'm thinking uh, about how to polish the angle that I'm going to take, but in the yeah. new year, that's uh, that's high on my list. Um, okay. So, yeah. Stay on Good stuff. For that. Good stuff. I look forward to, you know, sharing all that, you know, with different people and, you know, certainly, certainly my students as well. You know, I know you're doing some good work at Lehigh. Um, so, yeah, I've, so I've definitely tuned into what's going on over there. Shout out to everybody there, you know, to Dr. Oh, Miller you. as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. for sure, for sure. But yeah, this was this was great, Doc. And yeah, we'll we'll certainly be in contact. And I look forward to what what to what people are going to say about the text and how it's going to transform them. So well, thank you for the time. I appreciate the, the engagement. It's good to hear from you. Good to be uh, in dialogue with you as always, John. So thank you uh, and happy new year. Yes. Happy new year. Happy new year to you as well. And let's, let's stay in contact. You know. Sounds good. And there you have it. Dr. Christopher Driscoll, associate Professor of Religion Studies, not religious studies, religion studies. I like that Lehigh makes that distinction. Religion studies at Lehigh University and author of Black, White Devils, Black Gods. Great text. Um, I look forward to talking to you about it. Um, and please make sure you contact Dr. Driscoll with thoughts on the text. Um, yeah. Very, very cool stuff. Um, it's out right now on um, published by Bloomsbury. And yeah, um, really, really good tech. So glad we got to talk with Dr. Driscoll about this work. So before we get out of here, um, I do want to make a plug for our series Novel Adventures. Um, Khaled Keith Perry um, of Boston University and myself are the editors. I'm sorry, Khaled Keith Perry is not at Boston University. He's at Boston College. Forgive me. Um, we are the editors of this series and we are um, having co-authored and single authored books at the intersection or at the inner section of, got to even train myself to say intersection. <laughs> um, even though I think on the Center for Process Studies, it does say intersection, but the inner, the intersection, I'll say, of justice, theology, and the arts. Um, so if you have a text idea for something that is easily read, easily readable, um, and short and something that would push creative action toward the common good in the world at this axis, these axes, um, please contact us. Novel Adventures Proposals at CTR, the number four, process.org. Once again, that's Novel Adventures Proposals at CTR, the number four, process.org. You also can go on to the website, centerforprocess.org, and you can look under the resources tab. And under the resources tab, you'll see a subcategory that says books and publishing. Click on that and scroll down. I'm doing it now, so I know exactly where it is, so I ain't lying to you. <laughs> it's actually the third um no i'm sorry it is the fourth book series that is under the books and publishing category on 
the Center for Process Studies website. You go there and click on learn more after the brief blurb and you will see a description of the series and what a proposal should include. So I look forward to seeing some good proposals and we look forward to getting some good work out. This series, um, we will announce the publisher very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. But we do have a situation with a really good publisher to do this work. So we're looking forward to getting that information out there. But anyway, um, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm John Ivan Gill, Cross Community Coordinator at the Center for Process Studies, a relational worldview for the common good. Make sure you check out the Whitehead Film Festival, or I'm sorry, the Common Good Film Festival, as we now call it. And check out the 50th anniversary of the Center for Process Studies in Claremont, all happening in February. More info on CTR, the number four, process.org. We'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you once again for listening to All Things Cosmic Philosophy Science Art Brought to you by the Center for Process Studies A relational worldview for the common good I am John Ivan Gill And on behalf of Andrew Davis We'll see you next time Theme music by the extreme on Instagram, the extreme, D X T R E M E underscore B E A T Z.